Alrighty, so last week we started a two-part mini-series. I'm going to kind of rehash for those of you that weren't able to be here last week. And we t- we're talking about rejoicing in the struggle. Anybody having struggles in their life? Can I get an amen? Yeah, I think we all have some type of struggle, whether it's financial, it's health, uh, emotional, spiritual. There's so many struggles. And we started last week talking about three different ways that we could rejoice in the struggle. Uh, and they were, we can rejoice in the struggle by, by focusing on the ministry, focusing on ministering to others, uh, to being Christ-centered, uh, you know, focusing on, on serving others. We, we talked about focusing on the mystery, which is Christ-revealed, salvation revealed through Jesus Christ. We talked about the Old Testament, how there was this mystery of eternal life, this mystery of a coming Messiah. We talked about how Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. And then we talked about focusing on maturity, uh, maturing in your own walk with God and also helping others to mature. I pray that 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 was helpful for you as we went through. Well, now we're going to get into this next section. So we finished out Colossians 1 last time. Now we're going to be in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, Join me as we read God's word together. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let us pray. God, as we go through this wonderful scripture, God, as we, as we learn about you further today, as we learn about how we can rejoice in the struggles in our lives, as we learn more about the gospel, as we learn more about what it's like to live that out today, uh, Lord God, just open up our minds and our hearts, Lord. We know that your Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture and helps us to understand it more. So I pray that you be with each one of us and, and help us through that, God. Be with me, and as Brother Jim just said, may it be your words that come out of my mouth, not my own. Lord, I thank you so much for this, this gathering. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are our, our creator, and that you ordained us to be here today. And God, I just pray that this is a day that we can look back knowing that we encountered your word, God. We love you. Amen. So we're going to talk about three more ways that we can rejoice in the struggle. And this first one is you can rejoice in the struggle by focusing on love. Focusing on love. That's your first fill in there. I'm going to reread these first couple of verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul starts off verse 1 with this phrase, I want you to know. He's saying, hey, this is an important thing, and frankly, this is a personal thing. He kind of opens up his heart saying, I want you to know this. I want you to know I've been 
struggling for you. I've been thinking about you. And this idea of struggle we talked about last week is based on this, the, the, the Greek, Greek word, which is, has like agonize. It's, it's related to that. That's where we get the word agonize. And it means to strive or fight for. He's, he's struggling for these people in this area. And if you recall our first sermon on Colossians, we, we, we brought up this, this map here. And hope, hopefully you can see that uh, the circle there is Colossae. And we see Laodicea and Hierapolis. We talked about how there were, there were three cities here with Colossae actually being the smallest of the three. And we see him bring in Laodicea here as well. Uh, he, he wants to know that, that he cares about this whole area. And frankly, we talked about in that first sermon too, Epaphras is actually who planted this church in Colossae, not Paul. So these are like spiritual grandchildren to him. He cares a lot for them. Uh, any grandparents here... You know, you love your kids, but your grandkids are just something special, right? I, I don't know what it is. I love my kids, but, but there's just something. You, you see that lineage going down. And, and it's not that you love your grandchildren more. It's just you, you, you're more experienced. You, you've, you've seen this, and you see this legacy, and you see, especially when you see your kids raising them right. Like, man, it, it, is, it is a wonderful thing. And so this is him. He's seeing Epaphras, and Epaphras is trying to teach this church correctly. Uh, and, and he's trying to do that, but there's going to be some things he's dealing with, right? Just like parents, there's sometimes, sometimes there's things you've got to deal with as parents, right? But Epaphras is trying, and Paul is going to come alongside, like a grandparent, coming alongside and giving wisdom here. We also see here that there is some significant communication between these three cities, too. So uh, Laodicea, this church, uh, the church of Laodicea is mentioned four times in this book alone. And at one point, we actually see that Paul asks uh, the church, not only of Colossae, to, to share their letter with Laodicea, but we know there's a letter that's not canonized that was actually to Laodicea that Paul asked them to share with Colossae. We see that in uh, this, this next verse here in Colossians 4, 15 through 16. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans so that you also may read the letter from Laodicea. So he's communicating with both of these churches, which is pretty incredible. Kind of getting back to that, moving on to verse 2, we see that Paul has some hope for the believers of Colossae. I, and there, and I, I'm going to list four hopes here, you see in your hand out there, that, that he really hopes for this church. And the first hope we see, he prays that they have encouraged hearts. So, so he wants them to have encouraged hearts. And the heart mentioned here is the innermost part of a person. It, it's, our, it's our soul, our, our spirit, it's our will, our mind, kind of all that encompassing. And, and it's what calls to action. And he's calling that their hearts may be encouraged. Paul wants to see, uh, that this word encourage here is actually parakaleo, which literally means to call alongside. Uh, just, to, just to really encourage there. It can have a lot of different meanings, but, but probably the most accurate meaning here in context is to be strengthened. Uh, Paul wants them to be strengthened because there's a lot of false teachings that are starting to permeate the landscape of this new church. We talked last week about how important it is to have a foundation on Christ. Well, we're going to go into that a little bit more here, that our foundation is strong. And as we start next week, we're going to be getting into some of the false teachings that we're kind of going through uh, this area. Number two, he wants them to be knit together in love knit together in love. And this word knit means to, to unite or bring together. Uh, it's, it's, we, we talked about how the body of Christ is, is like a physical body, how, how they're all needed. We talked about that in Ephesians 4.16. 
Uh, and, and, and that's part, and how, how, what is the glue that holds the body together? What's the glue that keeps the, everything attached to the head? Well, it's love. We're knit together in love for one another in that unity uh, that we need to have. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great apologist, wrote in a book called The Mark of the Christian. He writes this. He says, the unity of the church is the final apologetic. And here's his quote. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of oneness of true Christians. Believers must be united in love. Also united in truth, but united in love. And, and we see that in the, the first and second greatest commandments, right? Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Next, he wants them to be assured of understanding. Assured of understanding. And understanding, it, it apply, it's, it's applying biblical principles to your life. You can have knowledge, but not really have complete understanding. Know how to use that. It's kind of a form of wisdom here. Um, under, and understanding is being able to apply God's word. And frankly, that, that's kind of one of the hallmarks of my job as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, is to open up the word and not only teach you knowledge, but teach you understanding, to help you understand what it says and how it affects your life, how we can apply it to your life. And, uh, and my job is to, to show that it's relevant, living, and active to everyone that I preach to. And finally, he wants them to have knowledge of God's mystery, God's mystery, which is the gospel, and it's Jesus Christ who is the revealed mystery. So finally, we get for the most important thing that he hopes for this Colossian church. He hopes for the church of Laodicea. He hopes for the Hierapolis as well, uh, that, that city as well. And he, he wants them to know the gospel. He wants them to always remember the gospel. It is the main thing that he wants them to know. He wants them to know that this mystery was revealed in the Old Testament, as we talked about last week, with even going from Abraham, going back even to Genesis 3.15, after the fall of man and the promise of a coming Messiah through the book of Isaiah of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This mystery was found and revealed only in the person of Jesus Christ, and salvation is found in him and him alone. So Paul's greatest hope is that they have love for their Savior and love for one another. That is what is going to knit them together, to bind them together. Next, we see that you can rejoice in the struggle after focusing on love by focusing on learning, by focusing on learning going to read verses 3 through 5 here. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Like I already alluded to, we're going to be talking about some kind of combating some false teachings. We're going to mention one even today, but we have to know our, our foundations so that we can stand securely. And I'm I'm going to kind of repeat that idea. So we must learn our foundations correctly so that we can stand securely. I, if, if we don't have a firm foundation, when false teachings come, when the wind blows, we're going to get knocked off of our foundation. We have to have a solid foundation. And, and that's what he wants the church of Colossae to have, and that's what he wants us to have today as well. It is of utmost importance to have a proper understanding, application, and wisdom of the Word of God. It is the inerrant Word of God. So truth and wisdom and knowledge are only found in one place. They're only found in one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Sadly, many people continue to search for truth in other places, whether it's philosophy or modern science or other religions. These are all counterfeits of what true truth really is. 
how they're counterfeits because, frankly, they, they even go against each other. And our, our world has tried to come up with a new paradigm of thinking of relative truth or subjective truth or even maybe personal truth where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, but they can both be true even though they contradict. And we know that that is false, that there is one truth. There is one person who is the truth, the way, the truth, the life, right? When we get to verse 3 here, we see that there, this word hidden Note that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in what? Not human ideas. They're not hidden in creation even. They're not, they're not hidden in our, uh, our, our, our efforts to learn, to explore, to think. No, they're found in Christ alone, right? In whom are hidden all the, knowledge, the treasures of knowledge and or, or wisdom and knowledge. We just saw that in Christ right before that. So it's all found in Jesus Christ. Sadly, we see a lot of people read the Word, and, and this is kind of where they come. And I don't know if you've ever read, read like a scripture to somebody, and it just makes complete sense to you. And you're like, man, I don't understand why this person is not getting it. And, and you read it, and you read it, and they're just like, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand. Well, if they're not a believer, we have an answer here. So 1 Corinthians 2, 2.14, Paul says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The, the truth of God's Word is only illuminated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes, opens our minds, open our heart, opens our hearts in order to understand the Word of God. In order to have the Holy Spirit, we have to submit our lives to Jesus Christ. We have to be a true follower and believer. The natural person understands natural language, and that is sin. That is what they understand. That is their native language because their God is the little g-God, Satan. He is their their, their quote-unquote savior who is going to deliver them to hell instead of deliver them to heaven. And they explain things in these worldviews of godlessness uh, in very irrational ways. And as a science guy, I talk about things a lot that are scientific, and no matter how irrational they may be, so the earliest recorded human history, does anybody know when that was? If we look back at writings, about how long ago recorded human history goes back? About, about yeah, about 5,000 years ago. So we're looking somewhere around 2600 B.C. to 3000 B.C. is the earliest known recorded human history that we see. What does the Bible say if you follow it through about how old the earth is? It would say around 6,000 years. So rationally speaking, it, it makes sense in the known world believe that for years and years and years as we talked about in growth group. Not until the 1700s was there even an, an idea that, that that really was. There were a couple of things, but it was just false. It was like, ah, that's not, you know, even earlier. But, but it really started to become a more of a fad or a movement even in the 1700s. And now today it has become accepted. We talked about this morning. If you go into any museum, you'll see millions and billions of years. When you go into many churches today, sadly, you'll see millions of years. People believing that. Sadly, even believers today are getting caught up in the theories of modern science to explain away the gospel, to explain away Genesis 1, to explain away the inerrant word of God. And sadly, Many of our churches today say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, believe in a young earth. Genesis 1, just believe the rest. You know, get, get the two and on, you're good to go. Well, the problem is young people aren't dumb, and they realize when there is a hole in one part of a book, there may be errors or flaws throughout the entire book, and they're taught to think critically that way. And so you say Genesis 1 doesn't matter. Well, they hear John 3.16 doesn't matter. They hear John 
four, you know, 14, 6 doesn't matter. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, Jesus may, you know, it was copied. It may not be really true. Maybe he didn't really say, I am the only. You know, maybe he just says he's one of the way. And, and there's this rationality of how we're going to explain away other parts of Scripture. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about hermeneutics and how we approach Scripture. And how we have to have a consistent hermeneutic. The way we interpret John 3.16 needs to be the same way we interpret Genesis 1. It is the inerrant word of God. And we start with a verse, and we go into the context, and we go into that. And this morning in growth group, uh, Brother Jim was just bringing it, talking about the context. Like, how much more could God tell us in Genesis 1? There's consecutive six days. There's evening, and there's morning. How many evenings do we have in a 24-hour period? We have one. How many mornings do we have? And it's in conse- consecutive things. And in Exodus, we saw that the, the week was based on that. The Sabbath was based on that, right? Sadly, our, our public schools, our universities, and secular thinking has infiltrated even the church today to where we have such a weak voice because we don't believe that the Word of God is really accurate. We don't believe as a, as a church universal that, that it really is the truth. And sadly, I've listened to countless uh, gospel conversations with college students, with guys like Todd Friel or Ray Comfort or Kirk Cameron, different guys that go on campuses and talk to college students. And almost time after time, without a doubt, evolution comes up. And, and it's the whole that the agnostic or the atheist says, well, I mean, the world's billions years old. It's, everybody knows that. Right, I, I've been taught that since I was in kindergarten. Like, like I, I read my. I mean, I don't know if you've have, have you have kids. You've you've seen even children's books from two and three are indoctrinating our kids to look at dinosaur books. Oh, this one was from this million years ago, and this one was from this. They have no idea. That is completely made up. And as a science major, as a physician, I know I've went through all of these classes, and they have no proof for any of that, other than godlessness that they put on this worldview that says. This is the truth, and they make things up. Well, we have a book that is older than any other book in the history of the world that has more copies than anything in the history of the world. We have a book written by a God who, as Brother Jim said, was there, that saw it because he created it. And we're going to go with him or we're going to go with man. I pray that we go with the God who created the world, and we don't go with man who is dead. Charles Darwin, my friends, is dead. Jesus Christ is not dead. He rose from the dead three days later, and he is the way, the truth, the life. Not Charles Darwin. Not anybody that you're reading today. Not any modern atheist agnostics. They're not the truth. And they don't have the truth. And frankly, they can't even see the truth because they don't have the Holy Spirit. It is not illuminated to them. So their truth is one that changes. But my friends, I, I won't tell you that these arguments are not persuasive. They, they are. And these people can speak with eloquence. And they can have tons of letters after their names. MD, PhD, blah, 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 whatever it is. But there's only one name that matters in eternity, and that is Jesus Christ. I don't care how many letters you have after your name. When all is said and done, we see in Philippians that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. No matter how smart you think you are, you will be humbled before Jesus Christ when he comes again. But they have been deluded with plausible arguments. And this word delude means to be deceived, to be fooled, to be led astray, or to be talked into error. 
and they are smooth talkers. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He will look, oh, it's, oh it's so, he's, he's just giving you knowledge, and oh, this is great, and then he'll puff you up a little bit, and he'll speak kindly to you, and man, you're so smart. I'm glad that you're not dumb like those other church members are that believe in a young earth. I'm glad that you've arrived to a higher knowledge, and, and you can believe, yeah, go ahead, you can believe in God, but just don't believe in Genesis 1. Just don't go there, because, you know, if you don't believe in Genesis 1, well, you know, now all of a sudden, did God really say that he was the only way? Right? If, if, if God really didn't mean what he meant in Genesis 1, well, maybe God didn't really mean what he meant with the fall of man uh, in Genesis 3. Maybe God really didn't mean that salvation's only through him, right? It's a slippery slope, my friends. We have to believe the entire counsel of God, not just pick and choose, because how, who's gonna, who makes you God to figure out what's true and what's not? All of a sudden, they become God. This theologian that's, quote-unquote, smarter than everybody else because they've, they've studied the Bible so long and they've read it so much, well, frankly, they're still a man. I don't care, or a woman. And, and it doesn't matter how much they know the original Hebrew or how much they have the original Greek. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't get it. And I don't know how many commentaries I read that are garbage. I mean, frankly, just I would burn it if it wasn't electronic. Like, I, you know, I've got logos, and so I can't just burn my computer, but, but I want to just be like, man, I would just want to dropkick it because it, it just tries to, to undercut what the Word actually says. These plausible arguments means persuasive arguments. And I, I don't deny that their arguments are, are not persuasive. I myself grew up in a, in a home where we were taught the gap theory, that the world could be older, but that God created. I never was an evolutionist. But I realized that my hermeneutical approach, my interpretive approach of Genesis 1, was completely different than my approach for the rest of the Bible. And I realized that it was completely different. Why? Because of something that somebody proved to me? No. It was because of the indoctrination I'd received in my public education. I, 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 had re, I had been taught so long, frankly, even from my more liberal upbringing and a, a little more liberal church. I'd been taught so long that the, that, that, that was just kind of, eh, it was muddy. It was just more uh, mythical, maybe even. And, and just realizing just how, how wrong that was and how convicted I was when I realized that I was being inconsistent in my walk with Christ. Friends, the greatest threat to our churches today, it's not gay marriage, it's not even abortion, which those are obviously God stands very, very firm against those things. Uh, it, it's, it's not women pastors, which obviously we know where we stand on that as well. Th those are not the greatest threats to our church. The greatest single threat to our church today is a lack of a belief of the sufficiency of the Word of God. We do not believe it is sufficient. Do you know what sufficient means? It means that you don't need anything else. It means it is sufficient for every question that you have, every situation that you face, every struggle that you have. If you want to rejoice in the struggle, you go to the Word. He will give you answers. But I think, sadly, as I was talking to a friend this past week, we just don't believe it is. We don't really believe as a church that the Bible is relevant. Because if we did, we would read it, right? We would know it, but we don't. You ask the average church member just basic elementary questions about Jesus Christ, and they will have no idea. I mean, it is embarrassing to see the church, the, the modern church today, where their understanding of Genesis 1 is, where their understanding of the gospel is. Most of them can't even articulate what it means to be saved. So we wonder why there's no evangelism going on. It's because they don't know it themselves. They don't know that you have to repent of your sins. That you have to 
turn away from that. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is 100% man, 100% God, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he was risen three days later and now sits at the right hand of the Father. They cannot articulate that. They'll say you need to be a good person, which is the anti-gospel because you can't be good. Romans 3 says no one is good, not even one. So what they've just said is, well, you're condemned to hell. That's their gospel. Just be good because is anybody good? Can anybody raise your hand and be like, I'm awesome, I'm great. We can say maybe we're better than that guy, but that's not how we're going to be judged. Or I'm better than that girl. And that's how people live their life. They live their life in an Islamic state. It's true. So, so your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds in Islam. And even then, Allah might still cast you into like a fire or wherever. It's not hell, it's different, it's annihilation. But you, so, so you, if you look, like that's, we're preaching as the church an Islamic false narrative. I mean, we, we've been, we, we actually have more external cultural effects on our own church than we have affecting our culture. Sadly, though, we waste our lives on things that are going to pass away. Social media, television, entertainment, sports, whatever it is. We spend all of our time there because that must be our sufficiency. That's where we get our, our answers instead of the Word of God. And I just think that we really don't think it's sufficient. I, I think that parents don't think the Bible is sufficient for the Word of God. Because parents, if I told you, hey, if you want to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you want to give them the best chance to be a believer later, know this inside and out. It will, it will help you to be wise to answer the right questions. Would you read it? Yeah. If, if I told you I had a book that would tell you how to be a parent, you'd be like, sign me up. I need it. But then when I tell you the Bible, you're like, oh, okay. What? Like, what, what is that response? Or, or retirees, it's like, how many people kind of go around after they retire and say, well, I don't know what my purpose is. If I said, I have a book that tells you your purpose, it will tell you exactly what you're here for. You're here to continue to spread the gospel, to tell your neighbors about Jesus Christ. You'd be like, I, I want a book that tells me what to do. Well, I have one. And then people are like, oh, okay, that's the Bible. All right, that's good. Or, or children, young adults, even adults. Well, I can tell you how to invest your money. I have a book that tells you how to invest, to be successful. I have a book that tells you how to you know, be successful in your marriage. I have a, a book that tells you even who to marry and how to pick that partner. I have a book that tells you, you know, how you should save, how you should tithe, how you should, all those things. It will tell you how to, how to live your life. I, it'll, it'll help you find your purpose to be like, man, I want to read that book. Who, who wrote that? Oh, Jesus. Jesus wrote it. And it's like, oh, well, it's the Bible. Because the problem is it takes work. You have to read it. There, there's a lot of words, right? It, it takes effort. And here's the thing. It's a gradual process. You have to continue reading it and be in it over and over and over again, and you will see God continue to illuminate it. Michael Crawford, a church planner and leader, said we need to make sure our relationship with God is transformational and not transactional. Many of us read the Bible this way. Oh, yeah, I'll put in my 15 minutes this morning, just bless my life. Okay, I'll put in this, but help my wife to be more kind to me or my husband to be more kind to me or my kids to be better or my job to go well. It's a transaction. I'll do this if you do this for me, God. Yeah, I'll go to church. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll step in. I'll even go eh, maybe twice a month because that's what people do. Maybe once, you know, we'll see. I'm gonna, I'll put in that time, just bless me. Bless me financially. Bless me in my marriage. Bless me with, with kids that listen. Bless me with whatever it is a new car, whatever, I don't know. It's transactional. It's like, if I do this for you, God, bring... No, we, we approach God and His Word to be transformed ourselves. Not that God gives us anything, but that God changes us from the inside out. We have to repent 
of our transactional way of looking at the Word of God. Like, I'm going to do this so it'll make me a better person in a way. No, so God will, will do those things. Not so you can be better. Not so you can do these things. And going on to verse 5, we see we must be firm in our foundation. Paul lets us know that we can rejoice in the struggle by focusing on learning. And through our learning, reading the Word of God, he, he imparts wisdom in believers. He helps us stand against the flaming arrows of the evil one in our culture even. In Ephesians 6.16, we see that. And he, he uses these two words that are oftentimes military words. And it says, to be in good order in the firmness of your faith. This reference of good order is being united together like a military group, united. You know, you watch the Marines, and they, and they charge out, and they're, they're in order. They, they, they have a first line, a second line, a third line. They have, they have order to it. It's not just chaotic. They didn't just say, hey, just go get them. You know, there's an order to it, and we're to be that way, to be united together in order. And we're firm against false teaching because we're firm on the Word of God. That's how we're to be as the church. So we've talked about we need to focus on the Lord, and we need to focus on love, uh, we need to focus on learning, and finally, this last one, we need to focus on the Lord. This is where it kind of goes into that part here. So join me here as we read verses, there, focus on the Lord, sorry about that, and uh, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here I'm going to go ahead and give you these three, uh, and then we'll talk through them. So the three phases of Christian growth that we see taught here in principle is to being, be, is being rooted, being built up, and being established. Being rooted, being built up, and being established. So let's break these down one by one. So the first is, is being rooted. This being rooted is, is being firmly and can anybody think of what would be the most rooted thing you can think of on earth? A tree. I heard somebody say it. Good job. So a tree would be the most rooted. Actually, some trees actually have roots that are like identical to how big the tree is, but they just go down that far. That is how great their roots are. And this word, this is being firmly fixed. Being rooted means being firmly planted in Christ. Not in the culture, not in the world, but firmly planted in in Christ. And the Greek word here is actually more appropriately translated having been firmly rooted, which is the perfect uh, tense of the participle for English majors out there, not me. But if any of you are English majors, that's what it is. The NASB actually does that. It says having been firmly rooted. So it means you're, you're, you've been rooted before, you're rooted now, and you're always going to be rooted. That's, it's a beautiful concept there. Next we see that they are, they are then built up. So after having that firm foundation in Christ, they are built up on that foundation on Jesus Christ. And this is a continuous process that is done. It's not just an overnight thing. It continues to happen. There's a big theological word we're going to address here called sanctification. And that's the way believers are built up. And, and we see two words here. The first one, to be rooted, which we just talked about, is to be saved. It, it's to be rooted in Christ, and it refers to justification. And justification is being found not guilty and having your sins forgiven through Christ. One is considered righteous before God through Christ's sacrificial atonement. Some people will say, just as if I never sinned. And I mean, you still, you did. Jesus had to die for it. So it's not if you, as if you didn't sin, but it's that Christ has taken on the wrath of God for you. And now you're considered righteous through his atonement. Then we see sanctification. 
Sorry, I'll put them up there. Sorry, you probably can't see them. There we go. Okay. Uh, sanctification is the continual process in the lives of saved believers of being set apart from sin. So sanctification is really what this being built up is talking about. It's becoming more like Christ, more holy because of his word, the Holy Spirit, and even unbelievers. And it's done both directly and indirectly. Uh, sanctification is a, a difficult concept sometimes to figure out, and I hear it kind of mistaught a lot among a lot of churches. So sanctification is done directly by God and indirectly by God. And, and so he does it directly by God, by the Holy Spirit just really reaching into you and changing you. Uh, even like when you're first saved, the old is gone, the new has come, the Holy Spirit justifies you and already starts sanctifying you at that point. He gives you a new heart, a new mind. He helps you start to grow. Uh, it actually says that he writes the law on your heart. Uh, so, so it's in there. He takes your conscience and makes it, and, and, and makes it better. You know, upgrade your conscience. Everybody's born with a conscience. They know what's right or wrong. When you're saved, that, that gets an upgrade. It gets an upgrade because the Holy Spirit is there to convict you at that point. Sanctification, however, doesn't save you. And he does it indirectly. And, and the way God indirectly sanctifies you is by using means of grace. And this can be other believers who help sharpen you, who help call you out in your own sin, through trials even. Trials can be sanctifying. A lot of times we pray that we don't have trials. Sometimes if you look back at your life, those are the best times of your life. They really helped you grow closer to God. Uh, obedience, being obedient, he can use that for, as in a sanctification and uh, just abiding in him and enjoying him. So sanctification does not save you, but it is a mark that you are saved. Saved believers persevere, and they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And although God does use these different means of grace we mentioned to sanctify you, the primary force in your life that does the change is God. He's the one who changes hearts. So finally, we come to being established in the faith, being established in the faith. And this, those who are firmly rooted in Christ are established by Christ. And this word established is actually where we kind of, it used to be used for legal contracts. Uh, and, and so it would be a guarantee of a legal contract. We can know that we are signed, sealed, and delivered because of what Jesus Christ has done. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. However, when I, when I tell people what it means to be saved, I think we have to remember sanctification has to be taking place too in order to be a mark of a believer. And I refuse to give people, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. I want to be very clear about that. But true saved believers are sanctified. And I, I refuse to give people a pass with a one-time decision. I walked down that aisle. In our culture, that, that's kind of the thing. Walked down that aisle, gave my heart to Christ. Well, after that, what happened? Uh, do you have a mark of being a believer, or was it a head knowledge, right? Because even Satan believes and shudders. Even the demons believe, right, and shudder that Jesus is the Christ. Believing he's the Christ isn't what saves you. Repenting of your sins and him being the Lord of your life is what saves you, giving your entire life to him. A couple of verses I just want to go through real quick that kind of shake that idea. James 2.17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's tough. It's not teaching that works are necessary for salvation, but what it's saying is the true saving faith works. Those who are saved work for God because God works in them and through them. Finally, another one we taught not too long ago, and we went through 1 John, a very tough scripture. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If taken out of context and taught incorrectly, we're all going to hell. Like, that's what that one just said. All right, that is not what it says. So what it says is makes a practice of sinning, meaning unrepentant sin. True believers sin, and they sin a lot. If they're like me, they sin a lot. But they repent of their sins, and they continually fall on their knees. I'm sorry, God, help me through this, right? 
Paul wants to know that walking down an aisle or saying a certain prayer isn't what saves you. True salvation is a lifetime submission to Christ and resting in Christ. It's being born again, which is an act of God. You're drawn to Christ. You respond to that. Jesus saves you. It requires humility, however, and it requires a turning from your sins. My friends, I pray that everyone here is assured of their faith. I, I pray that all of you all can say, hey, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've had ups and downs, and it looks like the stock market. You know, I'm higher than I was here, but man, I've had some dips. I've had some stock market crashes. That's part of life. But you should see that continual trend to be moving more like Christ over your lifetime. I pray that, you can, that you've not just made a head decision, that, you, that you've really firmly put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, and this is a scary verse. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Friends, I know we've heard that before, but just, just read it in your head, in your heart. Jesus says most people are going to hell. Like that's, this is, that's what he's teaching here. Most people are not truly going to be saved are really truly going to give their lives to him. Uh, many people, like he saw, followed him for a while, and when it got hard, it's peace, not doing that, right? We've seen that with COVID, right? So many people came to church, and COVID came. I could get a bad sickness, peace, not in church anymore. We've seen that happen, right? Sifting of the church. Friends, be sure that you're, you're entering through the narrow gate, and be sure your heart is right with the Lord. Let's come to a conclusion. Just to rehash the last two weeks, we can rejoice in the struggle by focusing on ministry, thinking about others, focusing on the mystery, the gospel, Jesus Christ, focusing on maturity, growing personally and helping others grow, focusing on love, the one who is love, the, one, the, the love that unites us, that Jesus loves others through us. We need to love the Lord, with all, Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Focusing on learning, getting a sure foundation on the word of God, making the word of God the prime position of our lives. And finally, focus on the Lord, being Christ-centered in everything that we do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that we are abounding in thanksgiving as you, 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 you ended um, this section with. That we abound with thanksgiving because we're able to rejoice in the struggle, because we know you as our Lord and Savior. I pray that you sanctify us, that you help us to see your word as sufficient, as, as the, prime, the primacy of our lives being built around that. Lord, convict us for, uh, for not always doing that. Convict us for being more transactional instead of transformational. Uh, approaching you with more of a transactional, uh, almost like a, a master-slave relationship instead of we want to be transformed by you or God. You love us. You, you desire a relationship with us. You want us to grow. Just help us to do that, God. If there's anyone here who's not put their faith in you, Lord, um, I would love to talk to him after the service and, and we could kind of talk a little bit more about what that means or, or if there's anybody here that's unsure or wants to just talk about it a little bit more I'd love to Lord God be with us may we be a church that is founded upon the solid rock of your word and not on culture we love you we praise you and thank you Amen